Good morning, Chapel Hill. So good to see so many of you here in person. Welcome to those of you who are worshiping with us at home as well. Week by week, we see more folks coming back. Week by week, the sound of your singing swells in this place, and it is uh, a pleasure to worship with you. A couple of weeks ago, today actually, I was hit by a pretty nasty infection and ended up in the uh, ER. Uh, actually, uh, it was my wife who ended me up in the ER. My, my inclination was, as I suspect most men, uh, sleep it off, you know, rub a little dirt on it and it will be fine. Finally, Cindy said, get in the car, we are going to the hospital. And uh, I, during my convalescence, I have come to realize that my, uh, my dear Cindy is a combination of Florence Nightingale and George Patton. <laughs> Sweet and fearsome, all uh, wrapped up into one. And uh, of course, being sick is never uh, any fun. It's good to feel like I'm certain to be on the mend. But in the course of that, being reminded of the wonderful woman who is in my corner, that is always a, a really a good gift. Today, we're going to meet a couple of guys who were in the Apostle Paul's corner. And I want you to remember, Paul is on pri in, in prison. He's on trial for his life. He expects that he's going to be executed. Uh, and, uh, and he's trying to keep calm, he's trying to keep his chin up, trying to remain joyful as we hear him pronouncing the, 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 you know, the words joy, joy, joy again and again and again throughout this letter that he has written. But as you can imagine, it's not easy facing what he is facing. And uh, if you find that your joy is a little bit on empty right now, then it might help us to remember those who are in our corner too. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're in Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 19. Philippians 2, verse 19. Here's what Paul writes. He said, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. We jump ahead a little bit. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed, because you heard that he was ill. And indeed he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. This is the word of the Lord. I grew up, as I suspect all of you did, in the Muhammad Ali era. Remember? He was the fighter who famously declared, I am the greatest. I don't know if he was the greatest, but I tell you, I do remember watching him in the ring, and he seemed more a dancer than a fighter at times. He floated around that ring, and he taunted, and he juked, and he joked, and, and then he would let loose with it just a flurry of punches. Maybe he was the greatest. But there were times that even the greatest took hits, and in those fights, especially with Joe Frazier, 
when Ali took more than he gave, he would retreat to his corner and to the care of a lifelong corner man. Remember his name? Angelo Dundee. Angelo Dundee. The next services won't remember his name, but good God on you. <laughs> Dundee would splash water on him. He would break a smelling salts underneath his nose. He would rub his shoulders. He would fix his cuts. He would boost his spirits and rouse him and then send him back out to resume the fight. Angelo Dundee never threw a punch, but Muhammad Ali would not have been the champion he was if he had not had Dundee in his corner. The Apostle Paul was a champion. I think you know that by now as we read more and more about him. He was tough. He took everything they had to give to him and came back for more. He was beaten. He was flogged. He was stoned. He was imprisoned. Uh, I mean, and he just kept coming back. But Paul did not do it on his own. Paul had people in his corner, men and women who loved him and who cared for him and who protected him, who were concerned for his interests. We all need people in our corner, don't we? We all need people like that. Who are yours? Do you have any? Today we meet two of them, Paul's corner men. Uh, Timothy is one, Epaphroditus is the other, and Paul really speaks of them in very tender terms. He calls Timothy his son, and Epaphroditus his brother. So let's like, take a look at the son and the brother who were in Paul's corner. Paul met Timothy, as you will recall, in the city of Lystra on his uh, first missionary journey. He was, Timothy was the son of a mixed marriage. His mom, Lydia, was a believer. His father was an unbeliever. And we don't know what Paul saw in this young man. But he saw something. He saw talent. He saw heart. He saw sensitive spirit. He saw openness and humility. We don't know. There was something special that Paul saw in young Timothy. We know too that Timothy had his own challenges. From the rest of scripture we discovered that Timothy was somewhat insecure he was perhaps a little bit shy. He wasn't very confident in his speaking ability. Uh, he, he, he sometimes struggled with stomach problems. He might have had an ulcer uh, from stress. But despite all of these things, the good and the bad, Paul loved Timothy. He believed in him. He, he trusted him. He put him on his team and he championed him. In fact, Timothy has the distinction of being the only individual in scripture who had not one but two letters written from the Apostle Paul, letters of coaching, letters of encouragement to young Timothy. In those letters, Paul would write things like, don't let anyone despise you for your youth. Don't let anyone put you down because you are young. He would say, don't neglect your spiritual gifts that were brought out on you when we laid hands on you. He said, don't be afraid to preach the word. Get out there, do it. He said, fight the good fight of faith. All of that is... The language that we remember kind of resonates in our soul. Well, that was spoken to Timothy, his spiritual son. Paul even said, drink a little wine, it might help your tummy. Remember that? Drink a little wine, it might help your tummy. These are the words of a spiritual father. These are the words of a coach, spiritual coach. And in our text this morning, Paul speaks of Timothy in really extraordinarily glowing terms. He says... I have no one like him. 
No one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. You know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. You hear the tenderness there? I have no one like him. I couldn't help but wonder what would Luke or Titus or some of Paul's other traveling companions, how would they feel if they heard Paul say of Timothy, I have no one like him. But it shares, doesn't a sense of the intimacy of the depth of relationship that Paul had with this young man. Paul, Timothy was not just a partner in ministry. He was his spiritual son. And it says something about Paul's love of his sweetheart church that he would sacrifice Timothy's companionship in his time of greatest need because he felt that they required some of the spiritual leadership that Timothy could provide. He was willing to send Timothy from his side to them. How much did he love them? All of this relationship came about because of that Paul had what we, uh, it's a saying that we have around here. He had his head on a swivel. Paul was always looking and he noticed this remarkable young man and he leaned into him. He took initiative with him. He invited him into an adventure of a lifetime. And so one of those who was in Paul's corner was a protege, a spiritual son named Timothy. Another in his corner was Epaphroditus. Um, in those days when someone was imprisoned, the jailer didn't feed them. If you didn't have family or friends who were willing to provide for you while you were in prison, you would just starve. They couldn't have cared less. And so the Philippians sent a gift, of monetary gift to Paul in, by Epaphroditus' hand in order to care for him during his imprisonment. And on the way, bringing that gift from Philippi to Rome, Epaphroditus got sick. Sick unto death. I mean, sicker than a dog. Mercifully, the Lord spared him. But now, Paul wanted to send Epaphroditus back with a letter of thanks. Philippians is really a thank you note, among other things. Thank you for caring for me, for remembering me, for not abandoning me. And he knew that the Philippians also were anxious because they wanted to see their beloved brother, Epaphroditus, make sure he was okay. Paul also describes Epaphroditus in really lofty terms. Listen to what he says. He says, my, he's my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need. So if Timothy was a son to Paul, Epaphroditus was a brother to Paul. Not so much a protege, but a, a partner in ministry. And it was his near-death experience, by the way, that gives us a glimpse into Paul's humanity. Sometimes Paul floats around in the spiritual ether so high that you can hardly, he's hardly attainable, really. I mean, you feel like, I could never get, he's like super Christian. And, and yet, when Paul writes about Epaphroditus and his near-death, there's a tenderness and a, a, a humanity that kind of leaks out a little bit. I, I'm really quite grateful for it, actually. For instance, Paul was writing, if you remember earlier in our, in our study of Philippians, Paul wrote about his imprisonment, and he said he wasn't sure whether he would be delivered, whether he would be set free or not, whether he would live or die. He said, that's okay though, it's going to serve the gospel either way, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And you say, well, that's really lofty, but man, that's hard to imagine. 
I mean, do we really think that uh, if I live, if I die, it doesn't really matter? How do we mere mortals keep up with that lofty spirituality of Paul? And then Paul writes about Epaphroditus, of how he nearly died, and about his relief that God had chosen to spare him. Otherwise, Paul tells us he would have had sorrow upon sorrow. Those are the words that Paul used. You say, wait a second. Paul said sorrow upon sorrow? Mr. Rejoice in the Lord always said sorrow upon sorrow? That's what he was feeling? What a relief, right? How human of him. And Epaphroditus draws something else out in him. Later on, he says that he's eager to send his brother back to his home in Philippi because they would be relieved. And he said, and he would be, quote, less anxious. What? Wait. Paul is less anxious? Paul, who said, be anxious for nothing in this letter, is anxious. And again, we are so relieved to see that he admits that, yeah, there were aspects of his life, his plight, his fear for Epaphroditus that made him anxious. What a relief to discover that Paul has experienced a depth of relationship that drives him also to sorrow, drives him also to anxiety over Epaphroditus' illness. Paul's human after all. His life is hard and he feels it. And it was the presence of this man among others, this brother in his corner that helped him cope. This passage of scripture reminds us of the necessity of genuine, deep Christian friendship. The value, the essential nature of genuine, deep Christian friendship. Paul cultivated those kind of relationships. And when the time came that he was in his deepest need, they were there for him. And by the way, he's not the only one that models this for us. Jesus cultivated these kinds of friendships. If anyone could ever have been said to be self-sufficient, to rely only on the Lord and not need anyone else, it might have, you might argue that it was Jesus. And yet Jesus said to his disciples, I have called you friends. And when he came to his time of deepest need, when he knelt down in Gethsemane, he did not want to be alone. He said, will you stand with me? Will you be with me? He needed his friends nearby. So do you. The whole Bible rings out the necessity of true Christian friendship. It doesn't take many, but it takes some. And I think this story invites us to ask do I have real, true, accountable, deep Christian friendships? Do I have people in my corner that I can count on no matter what? And further, I would suggest that this text suggests that we need at least two different kinds of friends. One is the son and one is the brother. The brother, let's start there, the brother, the sister. This is the peer relationship with another believer. If COVID has taught us anything, if this year of isolation has taught us anything, it has taught us that we crave friendship. We crave deep relationships, hasn't it? And I think obviously the, the congregation of this church felt it because during this year, in one year, 500 new people joined life groups. 
Think about that for a second. 500 new people joined life groups. 500 of you were moved out of, the, out of your uh, comfort zone uh, out and, and to reach out and to cultivate relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. That's astounding. It may be the best thing that came out of COVID this year for us. 500 people who said, I need brothers and sisters with whom I can watch, walk. Were you one of those? Do you have, besides your spouse, and I hope your spouse is your greatest champion and friend, do, besides your spouse, do you have even one brother, one sister with whom you walk your Christian journey? I'm truly asking this question of you. Do you have even one? You may not need that, think that you need such a thing right now. You may feel com completely sufficient and adequate in your own right, but I'm telling you one day, a day of crisis is going to come, a day of illness or a death or of shame or failure. When you need an Epaphroditus in your life, someone who will stand by you no matter what, and if you don't invest in those relationships now, then they won't be there then when you need them or when they need you. I was thinking it's kind of like dollar cost averaging. When you're preparing for your retirement over the years, every year you just plunk every month, plunk down a little bit, plunk down a little bit, plunk down a little bit because you know someday you're going to need to draw on that resource. You need to dollar cost average into, into relationship right now. Not when you need it now, but because someday you know you will. And sometimes they're going to need you. The irony of all of this is that we live in this digitally connected world, right? Some of you, I'm sure, are more savvy on this stuff than I am. You're all Facebooking, Twittering, whatever. Good for you, not me. But the fact is, in this connected world, we have never been more lonely. We have never been more deceived about the nature of relationship than we are in this season. We friend and unfriend people with a click of a mouse. This is pathetically counterfeit. I mean, this is laughably counterfeit. I friend you. I unfriend you. Isn't it? It's ridiculous. And yet we live and die on how many likes, how many don'ts, how many friends. How many, uh, it, we, our lives are centered around this, some of us. Listen, my real, live, flesh and blood brothers, they are what mattered to me. I could not do life without them and I lean on them and I need them and I thank God for them and so do you. Do you have even one brother or one sister with whom you connect at a spiritual level that is deeper than gossip or golf? You need such a person in your corner and if you don't have such a person and God stirs you in this I urge you to reach out to Pastor Rachel. She would love to get you plugged into your own group. So, you need a brother. You need a sister. You also need a son. You who are believers in Jesus and have, especially may I just say, this congregation, this gathering, these mature, you mature saints, you need a son. You need a daughter, a younger person in the faith whom you are mentoring, your protege, the person you are walking with to give them the benefit of your life experience, your, your faith experience, someone who looks to you for guidance and for coaching. These kinds of spiritual sons and daughters have been some of the most re 
significant and precious relationships in my life. And I want to tell you, I am intentional about this. It doesn't just happen. I pray for it. I watch for it. When I see something that the Lord might be prompting me to, to reach out to, I pounce. You need to be pouncers. You need to take that kind of initiative and invite them into a journey of life with you. You have so much to give to them. Have you ever done that even with one person? My relationship with my spiritual son, Ellis, began when I sat next to him in a class in Oxford. And I watched him take these unbelievable notes. They were so neat, I couldn't believe it. I listened as he answered questions. I received his hospitality, and I was so impressed. I took out a business card, and I gave it to him. He said, if you ever get tired of studying evangelism and want to come and do it, call me. And he did, from England. My relationship with my spiritual daughter, Pastor Megan, began on a sunny day at a church meeting in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. When I met this vibrant, vivacious seminary graduate who seemed to know everyone in the place. And now Pastor Megan is leading our church plant in Port Orchard with energy and passion and resilience that has caused that place to flourish even in the midst of COVID, the hardest season you could ever imagine planting a church during. There's nothing more life-giving than to pour yourself into the mentoring of young believers. Have you ever experienced that joy, even with one person? You know, the third part of our mission statement, and you often hear it from Pastor Julie, is we, are, we exist to launch disciple-makers. Launch disciple-makers. And I think it is easy for us to assume that that is a corporate undertaking. We as a church, in the last 30 years, have launched 20 ordained pastors and more than 35 field missionaries as a church. That's great. I mean, that's part of our legacy. But do you realize that you also are called to be a launcher? It's not just a church thing. It's not just a corporate thing. It's a you thing. Who have you launched? It is so easy for us to fob off that responsibility on the church. One of my brothers, one of the men I walk with, who is one of the most spiritual, spiritually mature persons I need. It was like an eye, a light bulb went off in his head the other day. He said, as we were talking about this passage, he said, I realize I am called to launch disciple makers. It's not just the church's job. I am called to be a spiritual coach to those who are younger in the faith. Exactly. And so are you. So are you. If you are a mature believer, may I ask, do you have anyone in your life whom you consider to be your spiritual son, your spiritual daughter? Every single mature believer ought to be a spiritual, ought to have a spiritual protege in their corner. And I'll tell you, there's no greater joy than giving yourself away in this fashion. You know, there's a credit card company that ends every ad by asking What's in your wallet? Well, I'd ask, who's in your corner? As you do a relational inventory, are you able to point to two or three people, deep, abiding relationships that you have in your corner? And if not, I hope the Spirit will stir you to leave this day saying, I've got to pray about that. 
I got to pay attention to the Spirit about that. I got to be open to the prompting of the Spirit about that. I got to be ready to reach out in a way I have never done before. Such relationships don't just happen. They require prayer and a lot of hard work. And it will change your life. I should add, though, that there's one more person who's in your corner. I want to return to my earlier illustration. I want you to imagine Muhammad Ali. He comes back to his corner and he's exhausted and he's bleeding and he's beaten. He sits down and finally Angelo Dundee says, you know what? You're done. You can't go back out. But instead of throwing in the towel, when the bell rings, Angelo goes into the ring. And he takes the place of his beaten friend. And you say, that's ridiculous. Well, that's what we believers in Jesus think it happened exactly. Jesus, who has always been in your corner, finally said, you know what? You're beat. You're broken. You're bleeding. You can't take it anymore. And I'm going in. And he did for you and for me. And he took every strike and he bore every insult and he absorbed every blow that was intended for us because he knew we couldn't take it anymore. That's who we have in our corner, our friend. And that's what he has done for us. And that's why we come this day to celebrate this meal. Would you pray with me? So God, I pray that you would stir our hearts this day. I thank you for the gift of friends, for peers that, with whom I walk and to whom I entrust my life for younger brothers and sisters in the Lord, my sons and daughters into whom I've poured my life. And I pray every person in this sanctuary will give thought to that. Ask the question, is there anyone that I talk to about spiritual things that are more significant than golf or, or gossip? Is there anyone who is younger in the faith with whom I'm walking, urging, coaching, encouraging? Lord, I, I want us to be that kind of a church, a place that doesn't just corporately launch disciple makers, but we are disciple makers, every, every one of us. So, Lord, stir our hearts this day. Bring to mind those that perhaps we should reach out to, and, and I pray that you would bless us now as we come to this table, this wonderful invitation of yours to eat and drink and to be reminded that you are our friend. And we're so grateful for that. Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. Our worship services are Sundays at 8.30, 10 o'clock, and 11.30 a.m. We'd love to meet you. To learn more about Chapel Hill and find out about upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving sees.
Jesus, my comforter.